Beyonce Bojo. This is At the Edge of Canada with DJ Phillips. And we are live inside the IQ's Cafe and Billiards Hall on the third floor of University Center. Uh, generally, generously hosted by Umsu and UMFM on the tech here in IQ's Cafe and Billiards to talk about making space for Indigenous feminism with three exceptional scholars from the University of Manitoba, Dr. Emma Larocque, Dr. Deidre Demeray and Dr. Gina Star Blanket to talk about Making Space for Indigenous Feminism, the book that they all contributed to last year. A uh, big round of applause for them. Dante Bojo, TJ, back in the UMFM studios. The Making Space for Indigenous Feminism panel happened on March 19th at the University of Manitoba's Student Union Center building, IQ's Cafe and Billiard Hall. It was a really fun event, part of Indigenous Awareness Month here at the institution. And we had the opportunity to literally carve out space in a student area, study space, relaxation space. And so we were dealing with a number of variables. The noise was a little clattery from the billiard hall across the way. We had some problems with tech. You're going to hear static pop up all over the place. But we also had a really in-depth and meaningful conversation that I think for the people who are in attendance and those who are listening online really were introduced to the intellectual sophistication and capacity of our three scholars and panelists, Dr. Emma Rock, Dr. Deidre Demeray, and Dr. Gina Starblanket. This conversation is really, really good. This is an edited version. Bear with us with the noise. Uh, the static will kick back here and there. We've done our best to bring it down. But still, really important conversation about Indigenous feminism, safety, security, decolonial love, acts of resurgence, and acts of political and philosophical resiliency. Hope you enjoy the show live from IQ's Cafe and Billiard Hall in the University of Manitoba campus. This is At the Edge of Canada. to introducing our panelists and then diving into the conversation, I just wanted to read to you from a poem that is in the collection Making Space for Indigenous Feminism, which I mentioned is available at the back. Fernwood Press is here uh, to offer the, the book. This, uh, this poem was written by Dr. Larock. The title is Long Way from Home. And I'm going to read to you from the back portion of the poem because when I was thinking about what to entitle this conversation, I didn't want to just follow with making space for indigenous feminism. I thought maybe instead we could call it bringing down their Muniau hills, which I, I think is a beautiful way to think about what indigenous feminism can do to the decolonizing of the institution. So I'm going to read to you from Emma's poem, and I hope to do it justice. I have her permission, and we'll see how this goes. How long I've walked these hallways, my feet hurt, 
At 43, I want to play hooky, but I can't. I have credit cards to pay, footnotes to colonize. My relatives think I've made it. They don't know who all owns me. They won't lend me money from their UICs. My relatives laugh. Oh, I did my footnotes so well, nobody knows where I came from. I've walked these hallways with them a long time now, and still they don't see. The earth gives eyes, injustice gives rage. Now I'm standing here, prehistoric and all, pulling out their fence posts of civilization, one by one, calling names in Cree, bringing down their Muniao Hills, in English too, this home now. Yeah, round of applause, yeah. One of the coolest things about this collection is some of the poetry that's interlaced throughout it, and I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but Dr. Larock has two poems in it that are particularly prescient to the collection. All three have chapters in this, the panelists do, but I love that particular poem because it speaks to the intersectionality of being an indigenous feminist, an indigenous woman, a feminist in the institution all at once, and what's at stake for your nation, for your land, for your life, and for what you believe in and what you love. What we hope to talk about this afternoon is a conversation that threads through all three chapters. A conversation that talks at length about the ways in which there is security and a lack of security in the institution if you're an indigenous feminist or an indigenous woman. And the ways in which acts of decolonial love, acts of research, acts of participatory research and intense philosophical study of indigenous feminisms can grow a joyous and long-lived life in the institution if you're an indigenous person or an indigenous woman. Pleased to have on the panel today are three women who are doing just that, which is thriving and surviving in the institution. I'd like to introduce them one by one. We'll start with, uh, I think on this campus, somebody who probably doesn't need an introduction. Everybody knows who Dr. Emma LaRock is. She's probably one of the matriarchs of Native Studies. Uh, she's a scholar, an author, a poet, and a professor in the Department of Native Studies here at U of M. Her prolific career includes numerous publications in areas of colonization, decolonization, racism, violence against women, and First Nations and Métis literatures and identities. Her poems are widely anthologized in prestigious collections and journals, and she is frequently cited in a wide variety of venues and has lectured locally, nationally, and internationally on indigenous resettler or colonizer-colonized relations. In 2005, she received a National Aboriginal Achievement Award. She is the author of Defeathering the Indian in 1975, and she is originally from a Cree-speaking and land-based Métis family and community from northeastern Alberta. Her chapter in this collection is Métis and Feminist, Contemplations on Feminism, Human Rights, Culture, and Decolonization. Dr. Deidre Demeray is Métis, born and raised in Regina. She's an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba, directing the Access and Aboriginal Focus programs. She's an outspoken advocate of education for Indigenous students and is a 25-year veteran of post-secondary education administration. She earned her PhD at the age of 60. Her doctoral research focused on Indigenous identity and access to health care by Indigenous elderly people. And her chapter in this collection is 
Spare a thought for Métis women elders, illness and poverty in elderhood. And lastly, our third panelist is Dr. Gina Starblanket. She's an assistant professor in Native Studies and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Manitoba. She is Cree Soto and French-German ancestry and is a member of the Star Blanket Cree Nation. Her scholarship is centered in indigenous political theory and takes up questions of treaty implementation, gender decolonization, resurgence, and relationality. Her personal and intellectual commitments are informed by her family and community networks, as well as her experience working as a community-based researcher and post-secondary program administrator. Her dissertation involves a critical analysis of the contemporary politics of treaty implementation with a specific focus on Treaty 4, and her chapter is Being Indigenous Feminists, Resurgences Against Contemporary Patriarchy. A round of applause for our panel. All right, let's get the conversation going. Uh, first of all, I'll acknowledge that we are on uh, Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory, the Anishinaabeg, the Cree, the Oji Cree, the Dakota, and the Dene people, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. On my show, I usually do that at the end, but I'll do that at the beginning so we know where we're situated. And the first question we're gonna talk about is something that came directly out of the introduction that was edited by and written by, this collection is by Joyce Green, a pretty formidable and inspiring indigenous feminist in her own right. The thing about this collection, this is volume two. Volume one came out a few years ago. And in the introduction, Joyce says that volume one was born out of a symposium in 2002 at the University of Regina, one of the first times that inv indigenous feminists gathered to speak about indigenous feminisms proper. It was clear to Joyce at the time that self-identifying feminists, quote, experience a profound lack of security in their professional, political, and personal lives as indigenous women and as self-conscious feminists, as racialized others in a racist society, and as indigenous persons local in and sometimes excluded from colonized indigenous communities. And so a lot has changed in the last 16 years and I was wondering if you could start by answering Dr. Larock, how has, if it has changed, the environment around security or lack of security for indigenous feminists working in the institution. You're aging me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, first, if I may make a little, a little addition to your introduction. Sure. I, I am also author of When the Other Is Me. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, the thing about, uh, because now I have tenure, I haven't worried so much about uh, what I say, <laughs> how I say it. But there was a time in this university that uh, I would say the first 20 years I was here, uh, it was, I, I don't think I recognized it, uh, what, what the problem was exactly. I mean, I knew there was a problem. I couldn't get promoted no matter how many articles I wrote or a book I wrote. Um, it was pretty rough. Students didn't believe that colonization existed. And uh, administrators, uh, both department heads and deans, uh, I would say were pretty hostile in many ways to me. So. Yeah, it was rough then, but I have to say since about uh, the year 2000, my life has radically changed. Uh, 
Uh, my hair went gray. And uh, I, I got a PhD finally in, in 1999. And I had a whole new set of colleagues and a new department head who believed in me. And that has made all the difference. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the love rather than hostility. So, so, there, so there's a change, and I, I'm not sure if it has to do with greater acceptance with uh, being outspoken about women's issues among many other issues, but a lot has changed. Uh, and it's been, for the most part, really, really good, really good for me. That's great. Uh, one of the things that I'm hearing in your response, Dr. LaRock, is support and solidarity from de department heads, other colleagues. Uh, Dr. Demaray, can you tell us about your journey through education? You said you got your PhD at 60. How did you feel with support and security in the institution while you were uh, matriculating? I think one of the major concerns for students that are going through, indigenous students who are going through the education system, is finding that individual who understands what you've gone through, um, a group of um, uh, individuals who, who, can, who can support you through your education process and allow you to uh, think your own thoughts without kind of molding them in any particular discipline. Now, I was lucky because when I went through the system, eventually I found Joyce who was very supportive in what I wanted to say. Um, but on the whole, contemporarily, I still think that there is a huge problem for Indigenous students to find that pocket of people who are Indigenous who will carry them and support them through the educational process. I can't really um, I communicate the difference between having um, a non-Indigenous advisor and an Indigenous advisor who happens to be an Indigenous woman feminist, uh, where I felt I had the freedom to actually write my reality from a theoretical perspective I didn't know existed until I was pointed to the right literature. That was huge. Um, so my experience was a difficult one, but it wasn't in uncommon for a lot of Indigenous women who are trying to make it through the academy. And maybe Dr. Starblanky can speak to her own experience going through the process uh, of her, uh, her graduate degree and then eventually coming into the uh, teaching side and the professor side of things and, and how you view the state and, uh, of security in the institution as a self-identifying Indigenous feminist. Right. Well, um, as you mentioned in your introduction, Trevor, uh, I'm coming at this conversation from a much different point and a different time. Uh, so I, you know, inherited a lot of the work, the foundational work that was already done uh, by Indigenous feminists in the field in carving out that initial space that they talk about in the first edition. So scholars like Dr. Emma LaRock and Dr. Joyce Green, among others, who you know, I think had a fundamentally different understanding of what it felt like um, to try and articulate 
their perspectives and priorities in an academy that at the time was very, very um, perhaps hostile and unwelcoming and, and chilly towards those ideas. Uh, when I entered the academy, they were already creating that space and carving out um, room for those conversations. And so I had the luxury and privilege of learning those analytical tools and building on those conversations and then trying to apply them in my day-to-day -day life and work, uh, which you know I acknowledge with gratitude because that was you know, a lot of discomfort they had to cause in those walls to really um, unsettle institutional expectations and priorities and so on and so on. I think that Indigenous feminism as a field has come a long way since 2002, uh, both as a, a theoretical body but then also um, an activist movement. Certainly it's building momentum both in the academy and on the ground in terms of the, the various forms of activi activism that Indigenous women are, are leading and taking up. Uh, but then I also think that there's distinct challenges as settler colonialism continues to evolve, um, as you know, different forms of patriarchy manifest around us in different ways, and particularly in the institution, you know, with these different calls for indigenization and institutional commitments to indigenization, I think it implicates indigenous women in different ways. So um, while there might be more space and acknowledgement of the need for indigenous voices and prerogatives, uh, indigenous women and men as well still, you know, get have an expectation um, that we're supposed to perform versions of indigeneity that are legible to the institution in particular ways. Uh, versions of indigene indigeneity that are you know, comprehensible and that align themselves with particular priorities. Uh, and being an indigenous feminist isn't always one of those ways. Being a, a critical um, person in those spaces isn't um, you know, always one of the ways in which we are expected to, to behave. So uh, I think that there's still, you know, new challenges that present themselves on a day-to-day -day basis. I want to shift the conversation to responses to security and how they appear in each of your chapters. Uh, in particular, we'll start with uh, Dr. Rock's chapter. One of the internal criti criticisms of Indigenous feminism is that perhaps Indigenous female scholars ought not criticize other Indigenous female scholars. Or if they, uh, if they do, they ought to do so carefully. Um, in your chapter, you do speak to a book put out by Kim Anderson where she talks about indigenous femininity and in particular, I found that the template that you used was uh, maybe a way for folks to generously critique other indigenous authors. Um, I read that perhaps as a form of critique in love or a loving or gentle way to hold another scholar's opinions. I was curious how you thought of it and, and, and the way in which you handled Kim Anderson's work. Criticism, intellectual criticism, the reason for it is to move us forward, to make us think and, and ultimately to make a better world. That's always been my, my motivation. But I had to respond to especially the, what I call the, the maternalization of, of, being, of being indigenous, of being a woman. And then there were, you know, it wasn't Kim Anderson herself, but she was quoting other women. And, and I was speaking to a particular 
interviewee in her book who basically biologized the value of women and basically said, because of our biologies, we, we have to be restricted in certain ways, we have to dress in certain ways, we have to walk in certain ways, we have to sit in certain ways, and, and, and that will connect us to the earth and also to, to creation. I, I really took exception to that because it is so oppressive, it is so restrictive, and that is not what I consider uh, freedom. I don't know that there is a template for criticism. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know that I ever follow a template. I research, I think, I write. But I will say that I think all of us who do any kind of work for uh, indigenous people, whether it's on feminism or racism, colonialism, you name it, every otherism. Uh, I think most of us would say, well, yes, we're not doing it out of hate. We're not doing it out of any kind of negative space. We are doing it to, to make constructive changes and and the freedom to critique has to be uh, an inherent part of making those constructive changes. Dr. Demeray, thinking about your chapter in which you interviewed a number of uh, women, Métis men and Métis women about their lived situation in their senior years, dealing with illness, dealing with ill health, and one of the things that really stood out to me in your chapter was the incredibly loving way that you participated in your research. You did uh, coffee table style research uh, questions and surveys. You brought food. You engaged in their lives. You met them in their homes. Uh, how does your, how would you define or how would you articulate that research model in working with Métis, elderly Métis women in their communities? I think in a, it's certainly reciprocity. I mean, I, I, I wasn't going to go into their home and get their story and see their heartache and their hardship and not be able to give back to them in some way. Um, the one individual that I, I talk about in the book, um, I, I you know, went into a home in North Central um, and uh, heard her story. Uh, uh, you know about not being able to get home care because the home care institutions within Regina were actually had to create an a, another section comprised of individual I mean indigenous people because the other home care section was afraid to go into North Central so our elderly um, people did, weren't getting home care in the same equal capacity as other elderly people in in the city so when I went into the her home I mean she was so poor and she was so um, struggling she and her daughter she had already been in a in a nursing home and chose to move back into a small little house with her daughter because her daughter couldn't afford to um, to live on her own so both of them 
were trying to raise a diabetic young son and uh, as I was sitting there what struck me is there was a case of Ichiban sitting on the counter which is the worst thing you can give to anybody with diabetes and um, they, I mean they couldn't afford his medication um, she couldn't afford to get glasses she's Métis so she you know got um, very modest uh, um, CPP and old age security so how could I, as an indigenous woman, who heard from the day I was born almost, we don't have old folks' homes in our communities. My mom, I can still hear her saying that. She said, who doesn't look after their old people? And uh, to leave this lady in that situation, I went home and actually went into my freezer and got some chickens and some fish because she was talking about her young days and how she really wanted to, you know, to, to just to have some fish and to eat what she ate when she was a, you know, young person living in her own community. So I brought all this food back to her a couple of times um, so that her family could have something to to eat and to have her daughter walk in at night and her grandson come home and smell a roasting chicken for a change and to have something wonderful to eat. That is the whole process of reciprocity that's so inherent to us as Indigenous people. We, it's, it's just our way. And the same thing happened to my Saskatoon interview. They had no money and I probably, Joyce, if you're going to listen to this at some point in time, will give me heck, but it's been eight years, um, you know, to um, um, share some financial security because they had very little. So you give back. You, you take the stories, they're gifts, you give back to the community, and you make sure that their stories don't die. To me, that's what we as Indigenous people are about. And you know what? It's the right way to be. Before we get to your answer, uh, Dr. Starbling, about the question I want to ask you about your particular article and chapter is the reason why I brought this up, Dr. Demery, is because I sat in on a lecture in the Department of Economics. And it was all about the ways in which indigenous health were affected by the, quote, slaughter of the bison. What they failed to do was to take into consideration the multitudes of intersectionalities, the multitudes of stories, and the ways in which indigenous people have been resilient, resurgent, surviving, thriving, and dealing with incredible attacks, inc incredible alterations to their communities since contact. Now, I believe that indigenous folks like myself and those of us in this room are resilient enough to respond to any adaptation to our environments. We know them very, very well, and that is the key to our indigeneity. But I think one of the most important things that we have to keep in mind is, is that the story needs to be filled in with tenderness and care. And it starts from a really strong point of philosophy and a strong point of theory. And that's why I want to talk to Dr. Starblanket about what you wrote. And I called it, when I wrote the question out to you and I sent it to you all in advance of this event, I called what you wrote in your chapter, uh, Woman Festo. I don't know if that's, that's kind of a little clunky, I think, but it's along that lines. And the way that I positioned it to you is that I thought that your model of resurgence was incredibly loving 
uh, and incredibly attentive to the needs of indigenous feminist resurgent theory to be sophisticated, to be nuanced, to be decolonial in its spirit, to be uh, political in its agency, and to help form the next generation of scholars who are going to be reading it. How do you understand your theory and your philosophy of resurgence, the resurgence model, and articulating the need for indigenous female political actors the way you do in your chapter? Right, so my chapter is a bit of an intervention into the um, growing body of work that's being characterized as indigenous resurgence. And by resurgence, um, what many people uh, would understand to be um, this political or activist movement uh, involves a turn away from you know, seeking forms of recognition or rights from an external party from the Canadian state, if you will, um, towards more internalized forms of nation building and empowerment within indigenous communities. So it's not necessarily um, you know, trying to articulate some new version of indigenous feminist theory, but rather apply and stress the ongoing need for indigenous feminist interventions as the scholarship takes this turn inward. Um, why? There's a particular need um, for forms of analysis that might preempt, if you will, uh, the various forms of containment that can arise uh, when national boundaries are hardened, um, when tradition and culture are being invoked uh, as the grounds for a political movement. So, in a way, you know, uh, what I was trying to do um, was wasn't necessarily. Look, look back at the you know the forms of oppression and violence that Indigenous women have faced um, to date, but actually carve out space to ensure that the resurgence movement is as broad and as liberatory as it can possibly be um, by you know preempting those forms of uh, containment that sometimes arise when um, you know essentialist or static articulations of indigeneity or tradition are invoked as, as Dr. LaRock talks about very well in her chapter and has talked about in, in a number of other uh, instances. Um, so that's sort of the ethic that I was trying to work through in this chapter was uh, the need to continually carve out these spaces um, and um, ensure that you know we're theorizing about our own political movements in a way that's as broad and, and robust as possible. One of the things that is a call and response in each one of your chapters, and whoever wants to take the lead on this absolutely can, uh, is the notion that one thing we all have to be clear about is that colonialism is a gendered experience. It was different for men as it is for women. It, it goes through each chapter in different ways. Does anyone want to speak to that question specifically, and why is that so important that indigenous feminists are united on that point? Well, I don't necessarily think we are united on that point. I think indigenous feminism looks really different for different um, women and men who take up, you know, that identity or that philosophy or, or ethic of, uh, you know, working towards decolonization uh, or nation building. Uh, so some people see indigenous feminism as very much, you know, the, the recalling um, and uh, safeguarding and practicing of, of cultural traditions, maternalist traditions, uh, or masculinist traditions of indigenous whereas other people see indigenous feminism as the need to confront those very articulations of indigeneity and problematize them. So, um, I mean, I, I definitely think 
in, in all of my work, I refer to indigenous feminism as plural um, because of the, the multiplicity of ways in which you know, people interpret it and um, grapple with the sort of central uh, problems or questions that we see as, as important in this body of work. Making Space for Indigenous Feminism, edited by the Joyce Green. Uh, it's out now, it's available at the back. Please do read it. Before we get to questions, I just wanna thank all three of you for your work. Uh, in the name of Indigenous Feminisms, Indigenous Resurgence, Resilience, uh, Sophisticated Intellectual Thought, Creativity, love and honor and respect of the folks you work with and, the f and what you work for. Thank you so much for everything that you do. Round of applause for them.